Hi, and welcome to the second episode of The Learning Empire. Truth in learning. <laughs> so as you can see, that's probably not Will's intent uh, uh, for a subtitle to The Learning Empire. Will and I still haven't agreed on what the name of this podcast should be. So we're, we're going to throw it out to all of you. And hopefully by the fourth episode, uh, between you and, and our friends and colleagues who, who we can force to listen to this, uh, we will get some good insights into either one of those titles or a better one. So, uh, Will, what's your argument for truth and learning? Well, I just think it's punchy. It's a little gritty. It's a little bit over the top. Uh, we want to, we don't have the truth, but we want to aim for the truth. And, uh, you know, we're going to be looking at research. We're going to be looking at real world practice. And, uh, there's a lot of fuzzy stuff in the field. We ought to aim for something concrete, something powerful. And truth is in short supply these days in the world and in our field sometimes. So why not? Makes sense. Makes sense. And uh, I'm in uh, favor of the learning empire because I'm been binging Game of Thrones. So it's kind of where I'm at. Okay. So, so how have you been? It's been a week since we chatted. I've been good. Yeah. Been good. Getting stuff done. Uh, well, tomorrow's a holiday, so get some time off. Wait, wait. We have a holiday? There's no work tomorrow? Mm, boy, it doesn't have to be. Oh. What holiday? Uh, that would be Independence Day Excellent. here in the United States. Other people may not know this. I, I, I spoke with some Brits today, and I didn't bring up the holiday, but I did bring up the women uh, <laughs> playing football, beating the lionesses. Not by much, though. It was a tight match. It was very tight. Yeah. Yes. So you, you know the old joke? Uh, is there a 4th of July in England? No, I don't know that joke. Oh, do you know the answer to the riddle? No. The answer is, of course there is. There's a third and a fifth, too. Okay. That's a bad joke. I know. I so know. we got it out of the way. We have one bad it's joke. It's done. No more jokes, I promise. No more jokes. So, all right. So today, we've settled on three formal segments and then an epilogue. So we're, we're going in segment one, we will going to spend a little time talking about the usage of assessments like MBTI and DISC and, and other tools that people use to assess different things in business. And then for segment two, we wanted to spend a little time talking about leadership. Both Will and I have, have delved into to that topic as trainers. We've also and quite a bit of instructional design around leadership and consulting work. And then finally, we wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about what the responsibilities are for the trade associations to remain nameless until we forget that rule. And then finally, we're going to inaugurate a new epilogue segment that we're going to call the best and the worst, where Will and I will share both the best and the worst experiences in learning that we experienced in the previous week. So sound good, Will? Sounds excellent. All right. So I picked or suggested that we spend a little time on assessments to piggyback off of what we discussed in, in last week's episode. You really dissed the disc last <laughs> week. Can you say that 10 times fast? <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm finding it really difficult uh, uh, to um, have conversations with a lot of uh, colleagues and other trainers and, and people in our profession who, regardless of the, the data, either debunking these tools or questioning their value, uh, are still using them. Uh, and so there are a lot of assessments out there that that are being applied in probably dangerous ways. For example, I just read another article last week uh, about DISC being used as a profiling tool for interviewing candidates. 
which I find highly problematic. That's like illegal. It's, if you're going to use a diagnostic, this is my, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a lawyer, but I'm going to play one on this podcast for a moment. My understanding is that uh, if you're going to use a diagnostic for job selection or job promotion, you have to prove that the diagnostic you're using has predictive validity of their ability to do the job. And doesn't that require the person evaluating that to understand what predictive probability means? Well, yeah. Well, people are approving these things, whether they're in the legal departments or in the judiciary. These tools are being applied in a myriad of different contexts that are probably, as you say, illegal, but also ethically specious. Well, and not helpful. I mean, you're, you're going to be picking people that aren't right because you're using this diagnostic that doesn't work. So, so Will, you're more skilled and educated in these things than me. How would you, how would you at a high level, frame some of the concerns that we have around some of these personality and disposition tools like DISC and Myers-Briggs? And what are some of the fundamental concerns? Well, the ones that we always talk about in the measurement space are validity and reliability. And there's a bunch of different kinds of validity, but just to keep it simple, uh, we're really talking about, is it measuring what you think it's measuring? And uh, number two, reliability. If you take the instrument uh, more than once, you get the same kind of, uh, the same results. Um, that's a problem. The Myers-Briggs, and I just came across some data on this, um, but the Myers-Briggs, you know, if you take it uh, and then take it five weeks later, um, there's been research on this, and, and you, you're going to get different results. I think it's like between, um, don't quote me on the exact numbers, but it's like between 35% and 70% of the people we're going to get different results when they take it five months later. So that's not reliable result. But they claim that's because you change over time. Isn't well, that, I mean, isn't that oxymoronic at best? I mean, <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean so what do you, you have to take it every, every hour on the hour. Right. Right. Because otherwise it's not <laughs> reliable. But I, I think, so, so you raise an interesting concern around the validity of the assessment itself. But I think there's also a lot of question around the, the model that the assessment is built on. So, for, ex, for example, a lot of these, these uh, tools are built on Jungian typology. And, well, the um, Myers-Briggs is built on... Right, and DISC, uh, DISC originally comes from a, a, a guy named William Moulton Marston, who also, by the way, is renowned for creating Wonder Woman uh, and the lie detector. Wow. But uh, Marston uh, based his work off of uh, Young as well. And so but there's some fundamental problems, as I understand it, that there was no real research into the model or the theories that uh, Young and then Barston constructed. But these assessments were then constructed and built around these concepts that were not in of themselves evaluated and researched. So it's built on a house of cards. Absolutely. And, and uh, both uh, Myers and Briggs were not scientists. They had no skills in how to develop. One Wait, I thought they were doctors. No, it, 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 the term in use at the time was housewives. <laughs> <laughs> oh, by the way, that is a contextual historical reference. That's right. That is not a judgment on will No, or from will. Oh. Thank you. Saving my butt there. So, yeah, so the, but these, I think that this is part of the problem because when you, you ask 
any of the, the certified NBTI distributors for the research, they send you the research on the assessment itself. And so you, you're receiving a whole book of data uh, based on research they've done on the assessment. And much of that data is questionable in of itself because that research is based on face validity. It's based on how people self-report, uh, uh, how they perceive and feel the results reflect them. Well, so forth. And between a third and a half of the published uh, material on MBTI has been produced for special conferences related to the center for the application of psychological type, which is the group <laughs> funds MBTI. Wait, you mean there's a conflict of interest? Oh, there's, there's extreme, it could be bias, it could be fraud. I don't know what you want to call it, but yeah, there's some issues there. Well, and I think, I think we have a similar issue with much of the disposition tools like DISC and uh, the old Wilson learning or social styles is built on the same house of cards. Um, but these, these are uh, using data in a way that becomes very problematic because if you are not versed in how to read these data points, you are going to fall for the notion that these are well-researched tools. Well, and they get people thinking along the wrong lines. So you give, I, 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 uh, I think I mentioned this in our last episode that I've used the Myers-Briggs and people get all hung up on them. In fact, they sort of create this organizational religion, <laughs> you know, that everybody needs to know what they are and we're going to talk about it. And it's going to be at the beginning of all kind of responses and meetings and you know it's just it's crazy it, it deflects from what's really important number one um, and it becomes a crutch it becomes a crutch i'm and an the, introvert therefore and and, and the, the most probably the most important thing is that there are tools that are actually better at measuring a person's personality and their behavioral tendencies what are your thoughts on the big five? I, I've been running into that quite a bit lately. Well, my understanding, and, I, and you know, this is not research that I regularly look into, but I poke my uh, researcher's eye in there every few years. My understanding is that the big five is, uh, has been validated, has been used in scientific research, and is uh, fairly uh, well respected among the people that know these things best. Um, there's some there's some conversations about maybe adding a sixth uh, uh, criterion, um, but for the most part, the Big Five is pretty good, and there are actually free versions out there that can be used. In fact. Uh, you don't know this, Matt, but I did a little poking around. Oh, yeah? I found a website, openpsychometrics.org, and for free, you can have people take the big five personality tests. We will uh, put that link in the liner notes. For yeah, the, for the and they have, they, what, you might find this funny. So the first two they have up there, um, they have a big bold heading. It says, recommended test for scientific validity. And they say big five personality test and then describe it. Then the next big heading is recommended test for personal enjoyment. Ah, nice. <laughs> the open extended Jungian type scales. Now they couldn't use the Myers-Briggs because that's trademark, but they've got one that does the same thing. Then they have a whole bunch of other tests on here. And Matt, I'm going to actually encourage you to uh, look at some of these. There's the uh, Protestant work ethic scale. Really? Uh, there's the uh, there's the open disc assessment. So I know that's one of your favorites. There's the, the here's some here's some other good ones. There's the nerdy personality attribute scale, otherwise known as computer engineers. Yeah. There's uh, uh, we just lost that whole segment. Psychoneurotic inventory. There's the musical preferences test. Now I assume that 
this, these are serious scales. <laughs> uh, so you can check some of these things out. And they're probably fun too. Yeah. But, but like, uh, let me go to the big pie of personality. I'm going to start taking the test, begin the assessment. Okay, here's some of the items. I am the life of the party. I feel a little concerned for others. I am always prepared. I get stressed out easily. I have a rich vocabulary. I don't talk a lot. I am interested in people. I leave my belongings around. I am relaxed most of the time. I have difficulty understanding abstract ideas. I feel comfortable doing can podcasts. You, can you repeat that one, last one? I, I have difficulty, difficulty understanding abstract yeah i don't understand that yeah but, yeah, yeah okay i promise no more jokes sorry that's okay yeah i gotta stop that so yeah i think that's that sounds fun there's also uh, a bunch of organizations i think we have to be careful though because a bunch of organizations are now starting to market the big five and many of the trappings i think that uh some of these other tools that we think are less validated, but uh, some of the trappings around conflict of interest and, and how these tools get utilized, uh, you still have to question, especially mm -hmm. as these are being utilized in a commercial setting rather than just in a research setting. That's right. And we still, you know, worry about, are they predictive of something? Because oftentimes people in organizations are trying to predict something. Uh, will this person be a good engineer? Will this person be a good salesperson? And uh, you really have to know whether the instrument you're using really predicts uh, the construct you want to target um, at a relatively high level. And that's a big if. All right. So I think as we wrap up this segment, there are a few pieces of advice we'd give. Number one, I would suggest you always make sure that uh, the psychology field itself is not universally, but in a large way supportive of the, the model behind the assessment. Do you agree with that? I would agree. Number two, based on what you just said, Will, we also need to make sure that the tool itself, the assessment itself has been validated and well-researched and is constructed uh, in, in a way that, that yields the results it implies. Absolutely. Number three, I would urge you all to become a little more versed in what you're looking for when using one of these tools. So these are not just for entertainment, although they can be, but if you're going to use these, there are consequences uh, culturally in the organization, there are consequences to the individual. If they read something they don't like or bothers them, uh, there can be a lot of harm uh, done uh, as you use these in large settings, even in small settings, and we have to be careful. None of us are psychologists uh, in a clinical setting uh, in a workplace. So we have to be careful how we use tools that mess with the way people perceive themselves. Good point. So do you have any pieces of advice as we move forward? Well, just remember that there's legal ramifications as well. Uh, legal ramifications, pragmatic ramifications that you may not get what you think you're getting and just realize that one of the things that happens in organizations is somebody goes "Ooh, gee whiz look at this we should use this and then everybody gets excited and then we buzz about it and then we try it out and we are very excited about it for some time and then we realize it really didn't do what we thought it would do and we wasted a lot of time and we should have really right. thought about it more deeply in the beginning. Yeah, and it, and it wastes a lot of money, too. Yep. Now, to be in full disclosure, if you do want to buy disc, I am a distributor and would be happy to sell it to you. <laughs> are you really? We are. We've been a distributor <laughs> for decades. So. It's probably the only distributor that's dissing the disc on a regular basis. Oh, I am more than happy to, to sell it to you. I will tell you that it is as valid as your astrological chart. And do you give a mark? You should mark up. That's a really good wisdom. I think you should mark up the price. 
<laughs> I do. <laughs> We're about 20 to 30% more than the other distributors. Uh, good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I can, I can see why, um, you know, uh, your, your, your capitalist, uh, <laughs> Aspirations have not gone so well. <laughs> <laughs> Which brings us to our second segment. Leadership. 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 So just uh, in, in full disclosure, you, you used to uh, be a leadership trainer and a leadership consultant, I right? Was, I started out as a highly mediocre leadership <laughs> trainer. So is it highly mediocre or... Uh, yeah, stop right there. Just okay. stop right there. Highly <laughs> mediocre. I was I was pretty bad. Um, Why? Uh, I what? Why? Uh, that's a good question. Well, number one, I, I really I I didn't. So, okay, so the truth is, you come out of grad school, you got a PhD. They said you can teach this. I said, but my <laughs> PhD is not in leadership; it's in learning. Well, then learn about leadership. So I got sent out there and, uh, you know, I had been, a, I had been a manager and I managed people. So I wasn't completely a doofus, but I didn't have good presentation skills. I didn't really know the content that well. And, uh, yeah, not great. Uh, well, you know, I'm not sure anyone is great at leadership development I, I struggle immensely with this because leadership is such a nebulous and vague idea. You know, in, in traditional L&D, it's pretty easy to clarify an objective, what it is we want people to do differently as a result of a program. And leadership, when someone says, I want them to lead better, what the hell does that mean? I, I don't know what that means. And and when you, you, you dig in and you, you start facilitating a conversation about, about that, it doesn't get much better. Oh, you're absolutely right. I'll tell you, we used to build simulations. This is yeah. one of the good things we did. We build these simulations. And so people would have to, our audience members, our participants would have to make decisions. And then we, as the simulation creator, would have to decide whether the, the, the decision was a good one, slightly good, slightly bad. Did it improve? Because we had this sort of mm -hmm. a business model underneath it. You know, could it, it could improve productivity but hurt morale. You know, we had all this stuff going on. So when we hired a subject matter expert, like we would hire a, a guy that was an expert in how to champion change, we would have to take them away and, and we'll have like a retreat because all these subject matter experts, they believed in having principles. You know, we believe that you should bring your direct reports into decision-making. So then you create a scenario and, uh, you know, it's not true that every time you want to bring direct reports into decision-making, what if the place is on fire? You say, well, what do you guys think we should do? No, you take charge or if it's right ethical issue or if the boss tells you if if you're if you're the manager and your your boss tells you you got to do it this way you don't ask the direct reports because your boss has always told you you got to do abc so you got to just tell your people we got to do abc so there's you know so to get these subject matter experts to decide what was a good decision and what was a bad decision infuriated them because they had these beautiful general purpose principles. And, and it goes to exactly what you said. Uh, leadership is really a difficult thing because depending on the context, what's good and what's bad can change. Well, that's my whole feeling. Um, uh, I will argue that no great leader in history has ever taken a training workshop and subsequently become a great leader. Oh, of course not. Right? No, no one takes a training workshop and becomes a great leader. You, and no one reads a good book and becomes a great leader as a result. Right? And, and what the path is for those people to become great leaders is, is unique to them. FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, 
uh, is arguably voted uh, by historians over and over again. Every every four years, they run another uh, uh, poll among historians and journalists to ascertain the top U.S. presidents. Well, it's it's Lincoln is universally number one, at least for the last five. And then Link, and then Washington and Roosevelt take turns with two and three, yeah. right? But they're two and three, and and the the remaining top ten fluctuates as we go. And what what's fascinating about this is you take FDR, Lincoln, and Roosevelt, and all three of them have dramatically different leadership approaches and styles, and they have dramatically due to the eras in which they were born and lived, dramatically different and unique approaches to how they became leaders. And what works for one will not work for another. And what worked for one today won't work tomorrow because the context changes. So how do we train people? Well, it's a really good thing. And you know what I did today? I went to, uh, I went to Psych Info. Yeah. And I searched for the word leadership yeah. in the title. Mm-hmm. And I looked into uh, different types of studies, literature reviews, sy- systematic reviews. Mm-hmm. I looked at um, meta syntheses and meta analyses. And uh, I did a search. And it's surprising. I mean, so, so the kind of articles I'm looking at are not just one-offs, like not just a studying leadership, but these are like ones that look at many other studies. And there's tons of stuff. Like um, here's one, uh, spring 2019, leaders and followers behaving badly, a meta-analytic examination of curving linear relationships between destructive leadership and followers' workplace behaviors. Another one, Attention, attachment and leadership, review and insights, meta-evaluation of the success case method. Well, that's different. Oh, it applied to leadership. Go Brinkerhoff. Um, shall we serve the dark lord? A metal analytic <laughs> review of psychopathology and leadership. So there's all these different right. studies of leadership. And, you know, just reading some of the abstracts. Um, you know, there's some models of leadership that are fairly, you know, have some... Uh, somewhat strong uh, findings, some recommendations in the, in the literature, uh, things like transformational leadership. Um, yeah. There's things like ethical leadership. Uh, what are some of the other ones? Shared leadership, servant leadership. There's some, you know, now there's a lot of these things overlap. Um, but there's also, uh, and there's also some questions. Leadership, though. What's that? Well, you know, servant leadership, if you start breaking it down, it's not even a leadership process. It's, a, it's an engagement process and a management process. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, some of these are questionably even leadership to begin with, let alone models that we can, can analyze and study. Well, well just, to, just to put this in perspective before we go on, the, the, the leadership research tries to find out, are there things that people – in leadership positions can do that will make it more likely that their followers will be productive, uh, have high morale, high loyalty, high energy, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Just simple as that. And the, you know, the research is, is, is well done, but it's also because it's such a subjective discipline, you know, we should be a little bit skeptical about some of the boundaries. Well, it, it, it becomes, um, it, it becomes almost anthropological, right? And I don't want to dis anthropology or sociology or, or, but these have almost a paradigm from which their filters analyze the topic. So if I'm, if I come into the study with a perspective, this is the filter from which I'm going to analyze my subject and this is problem problematic in the study of leadership uh, so you you take james mcgregor burns who is an historian and one of the founding thought leaders around transformational leadership and mcgregor burns has the definition i love to use which is 
Leadership is an arousal process of mobilizing a group of people from point A to point B. I love that definition. I, I have to say, I thought you said an arousal process from porn A to porn B. <laughs> no, it's just my New York accent. <laughs> okay. So, but I love that definition. But that definition has a, a paradigmatic frame. It, it, it's in of itself uh, uh, philosophical. It's in of itself uh, weighted by a perspective. And, and so as you start to model different uh, leadership processes and ways to lead, you can't help but inflict upon the study uh, uh, your own perspective. It's impossible to, to not have your subjectivity guide the analysis. So I'm thinking, Yeah, I'm sort of being meta right now. I'm thinking about what our listeners are thinking. We probably scared them to hell. So... You know, all this leadership stuff, oh my gosh. Don't do it. Don't do it. So, you've studied leadership. You've taught leadership. Uh, what practical advice do Buy you my have book. for people in the learning field? Buy my book. $10 on Amazon. And, and if you buy the book, you get 20% off on the disc, I think. <laughs> you, you, no, there's no correlation. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. My, my here, here's my argument on on leadership development. Don't do it and call it leadership development. If you want, if you want your executives to become better at managing finance, teach them finance. If you want your executives to get better at strategic thinking or being able to look beyond the tactical day to day, let's teach them how to do strategic thinking. If you want your managers to be better at uh, developing their people because there's uh, no business reason for developing people, we have business cases for having your people develop and grow, then teach your, teach your executives how to do that. Ah, so but, you're, you're taking the, what, what people tend to think of as the leadership components right. or competencies yes. and separating them out. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And, and if you want to pull them all together and call that leadership, fine. Go ahead. Call it a sunflower for all I care. Call it whatever you want. But if you, you, you imply that leadership is this huge grand thing that only we can do well in our organization, you, you're creating a fallacy. It's, it's false. But there are lots of competencies that we, we know are going to help you run your organization more effectively. And those are things we can pragmatically and, 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 and fairly effectively teach. But I can't make you a better leader through a development program, whatever that global well, well, textual me, thing let is. Me, let me fight you a little bit on this. I mean, I, okay. I, I agree 80%, but... All right, I got to be. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I got to be from the professor. No, no, eighty percent—that's like a C plus. Come it is on. not. It's a B minus. <laughs> oh come on, you're getting great inflation. <laughs> so, as a leader, I can't learn everything in training. So I'm going to have to learn some of it in my work. Yeah. Yeah. But can't a training or can't coaching make me more sensitive? to look for certain things. See, I think people in their work environment tend to pay attention to some stimuli and not to others. I used to teach mostly, when I did leadership training, I used to teach mostly people who were technical people, engineers, uh, programmers, scientists. And uh, my thought was that these were folks who'd spent all their life thinking about things and much less of their life thinking about the people around them. Mm -hmm. Of course, they thought about people because they're human, but they spent more time thinking about quadratic equations or you know, tolerances and you know, technical stuff, yeah. <laughs> and less about the people. So if I could, as a leadership trainer, if I could get them to be sensitive to some people issues, they would then go back to their workplace and begin to see things that they hadn't seen before. 
Is 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 that? I mean, would you buy that argument, or is that totally, bunch of crap? No, no, no. I totally buy it, but I think you're going to be effective with maybe one or two people over the lifetime of that program over many years, and having that kind of effect. What I'd rather see is you set a a, a smaller objective of. I want you to have more empathy for the people that work for you and engage them in different ways and create an autonomy supportive work environment, blah, blah, blah. Um, and those skills will make you a better manager. Those skills might make you a better leader for all we know, if the context fits, those skills are going to make you a better project uh, manager. They're going to make you a better contributor. They're going to make you a better team member. They're going to make you a better parent. And, and so by focusing on the smaller skills, we get a lot more of a transferable application than putting it under an umbrella uh, of this, this vague, nebulous idea. Yeah, okay, well, that's, that's fine. I mean, I would agree with that, but I could still make somebody sensitive about empathy. Oh, yeah. About coaching. Yeah, but you can't... Show me how empathy is a universal constant among leaders. It's not. I, I feel for you when you say that. <laughs> and I, I will follow you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I, I know that not to be true. <laughs> but we, we have a myriad of different... So it's truth steps. and learning then. Is it truth and learning? Okay, you're following I, me? You, you know what's really funny is I've been sitting here thinking, all right, at the end of this episode, I think I'm going to just tell Will I totally buy into the truth and learning name. Oh, I do. I do. I'm sold. It's just like that? Yeah, I'm sold. That's a name. If you're cool with it. But now you're going to change your mind just to annoy me. I just, I'd rather you play it a little harder to get. That's all. <laughs> well, I want to go back to this leadership thing. All right. Because I, 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 if correct me if I'm wrong, but if they're beyond one or two, if there's a substantial number of leaders that we've identified historically as great leaders, you know, after they're long gone and we've had perspective to evaluate their, their performance over their careers and lifetimes, if we evaluate them as great leaders and we know that they did so absent uh, true levels of empathy, does that then imply that, doesn't that imply that empathy is not a necessary component to being a good leader? Well, okay, I'm skeptical of like historical analysis of of a person's leadership behavior because leadership often takes place in private, right? Okay, well then, fine, fine, but that 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 proves the prof that that shows that we have no clue either. So, okay, either way, the argument. I want to come back to giving one more perhaps practical piece of advice. Okay. I think when we do leadership training, we should be doing not teaching principles as much. We should teach principles, but we have to give practice, multiple practice in different uh, contexts, Mm -hmm. slightly different situations to get people really thinking about it. Um, and, and it can be practice and training, but it can also be practice on the job. Um, I'm reading this great book now called Range uh, by yeah. David Epstein. Uh, and, put that in the notes as well. Yeah, we got to put, you got to, yeah. And, and it, it, it talks about how um, people who specialize um, are probably going to do well at first, but not as well long term. And I think to me, that's about sort of how to get good at being a leader. Put yourself in many different leadership situations. So don't just lead in your office of accountants. Go lead in your uh, religious place of religious worship. Uh, coach your kid's soccer team. Um, you know, do whatever you can. Lead in multiple situations. Take job rotations. Try different things. Do project management. Do team leading. You know, you've got to have multiple kind of situations to develop that wisdom that makes you a better leader. Uh, I don't agree with any of that. <laughs> uh, actually, I, that, that was flippant. I, let me qualify that. I 
believe that leadership is something that I believe leadership is a relationship between the people that follow and the person that leads and that that person who's leading gets defined as a leader. There's so many people who take on a role uh, or the title of leader and aren't. And uh, it's, it's the people that are following that help define whether that person was a leader and that person gets defined almost almost uh, after the fact. Most people who are, are defined as good leaders or great leaders, it doesn't happen in the moment. It happens literally either immediately after some leadership event or it happens uh, after years and years and people have a little more historical perspective, but people don't get defined in the moment as a leader. And so if you, you, the more I, I would urge people on a practical level to stop thinking about it and to look at what are the things I need to do to be able to solve the problems in front of me. Stop thinking so highfalutinly and think more practically. If I have a massive project, what do I need to do to influence people? Bring it down to a more granular level. What do I need to do to make sure we ship a product on time? What do I need to do to deal with an operational problem? What do I need to do to problem solve and come up with new ideas for, for, for our next product? So, okay, but let's try to create, maybe, maybe we could sort of agree to dis, agree to agree in the sense that, yeah, during your situation now, we need to focus on how to get work done, mm-hmm. how to get work done through others if we're a leader. But my argument is over time, if you want to develop as a leader, do that, but do that in multiple circumstances. I would agree to that. And then be okay when you, you fall on your face and you die a non-leader. Absolutely. Because a lot of people don't become the leaders they aspire to be. True enough. Right. Boy, I'm never getting hired again, am I? (laughs) (laughs) We could have, I think you should maybe develop the anti-leadership course. Well, that's kind of what my book is. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. (laughs) No, I mean, I, I, I feel that companies spend a fortune on leadership development and it's a waste of time and money. I, and I don't believe I don't believe that you shouldn't develop people, and I don't believe we shouldn't try and solve business problems. It's it's the lack of definition, it's the lack of agreement, it's the lack of of our ability to evaluate efficacy that make it all difficult for us to focus on that. Okay, so to so finish this out, you're arguing that leadership training as we do it mm-hmm. sucks. Mm-hmm. We could do it better. I don't know, but I hope so. And we could be doing other things as well. And better, yes. Then that brings us to the responsibilities that the trade associations have. But before we uh, dive into that, can we define what a trade association is in case uh, some of the, the younger folks listening to us have no idea what we're talking about? Sure. We can, you want me to attempt that? Yeah, please. So a trade organization is, uh, well, it's probably different in different fields, but it's a, you, well, now it's, I think it's difficult. So it's a, it's a, it's an organization that tries to support the industry or the people in the, people in the industry. And there's different kinds, right? There's nonprofits mm-hmm. that tend to want to focus on the membership or on the field as opposed to earning money. There are for-profit ones that um, are just out to really create money, get money um, by doing things that, you know, churn the field or whatever, you know, create commerce. Uh, I, I don't know. What would you add? I, I feel like I'm not really. Well, to, to me, the, the, the theory behind them, I think, is threefold. 
Number one, to provide resources to the membership. Number two, to provide a central location of, of information and methodology. And number three, to provide certification uh, and training for the membership to uh, reach a, a certain level of competency, whether that's through um, not just a certification, but a licensing in some cases, or uh, some, some kind of administrating body that people pay to and agree to adhere to. Um, so those seem to be the three reasons a lot of these organizations exist. Well, I'm going to piggyback on your last one. Yeah. Uh, there are tra tra trade organizations also uh, sometimes try to create barriers to entry. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, right. So, right. for example, the medical profession doesn't want people calling themselves doctors who are incompetent to be doctoring. Right, right. right? So then they have, like you mentioned certifications, that's what got me thinking about this. So then there's very stringent requirements uh, to join the field. Um, and, and that's a good thing and a bad thing, right? Um, it's a good thing because you you want to uh, ensure that you're providing professional, sound advice, et cetera. Uh, my wife and I are going to a financial planner, and there's a big financial planning association, and they go have rigid standards. They have to get recertified every few years, et cetera. So one of the things we might think about in this discussion is what roles are our trade associations playing and what are they failing? What roles are they failing to play? Right, right. And what are, uh, in, in our field, our, I feel like our trade associations have no power. So you brought up the AMA. The AMA or in psychology, the APA, these associations have power in the industry to, to make policy that has to cascade through the membership, not just the membership, but the industry. In our field, if one of them who will remain nameless sets a policy or a standard, no one has to listen to it. And so we have these associations that are fairly large that run fairly significantly sized conferences, but they also have no power. Or they have little power, right? They can't, they can't tell you you don't qualify to be in this field. Right. Well, there's more of a marketplace in our field. We have multiple right. trade associates. There, you know, just in, the, in North America, there are at least six, seven, eight um, organizations that play at least a semi-role in being trade organizations in the field. Right. Some of them have sort of died out over the past few years, like salt right? right um oh that's why i didn't get an answer to my conference proposal yeah i think they still have a website but yeah defunct uh and i'm not you know i could be wrong about them but i know there's some that have have died out yeah yeah but i think i think that's one facet to our to our industry is there are a lot of them and they don't really have a lot of power um they can't mandate uh, anything um and their certifications don't hold a lot of weight either. Um, I have a right. CPT from ISPI. I'm sure it's I'm sure it's expired, but I think back then I was grandfathered into the lifetime CPT, which then one had to pay every year to have. So I'm not quite sure if I still have it because I refuse to pay. But I didn't do anything to get that certification beyond submit a few papers. I did. Well, you were one of the people that was grandfathered in. Now, if you go get a CPT, you do have to go through a fairly rigorous process. Oh, okay. All right. Well, that's good. Yeah. That's good. But who defines that process? Is it you yeah. and guy, people like Guy or is it? Right. <laughs> I think you is it? Uh, I don't know. I don't have a CPT. I figured my PhD and my MBA was good <laughs> enough for letters. So... <laughs> uh, but anyway, so I mean, let's let's 
we, we, we wanted to talk about what responsibilities these folks had. So we've sort of laid out the big yeah. picture here. Um, I would think that one of the responsibilities is to support the members or the people that are doing the work uh, in helping them become better at what they're doing. And I would love that to, to include setting standards for what good looks like. Be a- I would too. And I think that's where one of the big problems we have in our field is that we have every year there's like 50% new people come into the field. Um, you've heard the terms of accidental instructional designers, accidental trainers, yeah. et cetera. I was demoted into L and D. Exactly. <laughs> right. So there's all these people that come in. Um, there's, there's no, you don't have to have a certain degree. You don't have to have a certain certification. Anybody can join. And, and that creates a big, wide swath of people that, that often don't believe the same thing. So then we fight a lot amongst ourselves. There's a lot of issues around that. And so well, when I look at the trade associations and some of the stuff they're putting out, uh, some of the credentials I've looked at, and people send me this stuff. So, you know, they said, well, you know, uh, this trade association, such and such, is teaching learning styles in their certification program. Can you believe it? (laughs) And so then people like um, (laughs) uh, Clark Quinn and I, uh, and there was a few others in this conversation, we go and talk to this trade association and we say, hey, you probably don't know that you have this in there. You should get rid of it. Five years later, it's still, still in there. there. Yeah. So, you know, that stuff's going on all the time. I'll tell you a couple of things that are really ticking me off. So there's trade associations in the learning, workplace learning field that do not sell uh, books like Julie Dirksen's uh, Design for How People Learn. They don't sell books um, uh, you know, on sort of cognitive psychology. They don't, they don't sell Ruth Clark's books. They don't sell, um, uh, you know, the book by, I'm blanking on the name, Make It Stick, right? right. They don't sell Benedict Carey's or Ulrich Boser's book on learning psychology. You know, they don't sell my book on performance-focused smile sheets because you're not published by them. They sell books that they publish themselves. Right. I would never want to call that a conflict of interest. No, no, it's not a, it's not, it's, it's sort of, it is partly extortion because you sort of feel like you better publish your book with them or, or you don't qualify to publish with them because what you're, you're writing is in direct conflict with one of their other authors. Right. Or one of their other authors gets front page on on their uh, periodical that they put out. Um, right. Yeah, um, big. Uh, we'll, let, let me interrupt though. I, I want to qualify this because I don't want us to come off sounding bitter. Oh, no, we're not bitter. We love our trade associations. <laughs> well, I, I want to be clear that we've both been a part of trade organizations for decades. Yes. And, and, um, both of us have had good experiences and bad experiences and many of our dearest friends we met through these trade organizations. So we're we're not coming from a position of, of bitterness and anger. We're, we're coming hopefully from an educated perch of, of criticism to be able to say, look, here are some problems we see with these associations that are undermining the ability for our industry to, to, to be better. We wish, we wish they could be better. Yeah. Um, um, because they had, they, you know, you said they don't have any power and influence. I, I'm, I'm going to disagree with that. I think they uh, control a lot of the agenda of what people get thinking about when they pick people for their conferences to speak, when they put publications on their website, when they, uh, uh, offer training on their websites, et cetera. 
Yeah, I, I can definitely see that. Let's move on to best and worst. Now, the idea behind this segment is it's short and sweet. Yes. Right? And so we'll start with you. Do you have your best and your worst engagement around learning? Okay. So these are things I've seen in the past week or so. Yeah, just that, one best, one worst. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I'm going to go with the worst. <clears throat> okay. And this relates to our conversation with trade association. Uh, there's a guy in our field. He's fairly well known, not super well known, fairly well known. And he got an award from a trade industry publication uh, for an article that he wrote this past year. And uh, I went and looked at the article and it's the articles about a bunch of crap about learning objectives and it's just all the same old stuff you know oh we should use uh you know action verbs and stuff like that he had a little twist on it which was good i liked his twist but he got this award from this trade association that is known as a pay-to-play organization uh that yeah i'm just gonna stop there now my best um i've been uh, fortunate to read a, uh, uh, sections of a book that are coming, a book that's coming out. Um, I've been asked to comment on it and, and provide some ideas, but it's coming out. It's by Miriam Nealon and Paul Kirshner. Uh, Miriam is a research to practice person and Paul Kirshner is a researcher. It's going to be a great book on the science of learning in the workplace learning practice. So uh, very exciting. Yeah. That's the best thing I've seen this week. All right. My worst. I had a client sit down with me and, and explain that all trainers have their shtick. And that if you don't evolve your shtick, you're going to be out of work someday. And my first thought was, it's just this guy. Who had that view so I start playing it around with other clients and other folks and oh yeah yeah trainers have to have their shtick but it has to evolve and they have to always be thinking about the next best cool hip thing and I found that just so depressing that just good learning design good tools good resources aren't enough that we have to sell an infotainment or entertainment component in order to feed ourselves. Yeah. And I just found that depressing that, that it's, it's not just, yeah. Do the work well. I'm going to piggyback on this and relate it back to our trade association discussion. (laughs) I, there was a trade association. I spoke there a lot and every year they would ask me, will, can you speak about something new? <laughs> and I was like, well, wait a minute. I've been talking about the fundamentals of the science of learning. Those are still valid. You know, I got thinking about it this way. It would be, and I'm not comparing myself to this person, not at all. I'm a mental midget, but it'd be like asking Einstein. Well, you know, you keep coming up with this E equals MC squared. Can you like change it around a little this year? Yeah. Uh, this should also be a topic for us at some point. The, the goal of training is not to entertain, right? And yeah. It's such a core component now of what we have to sell. And, yeah. uh, uh, but that brings me to the best. Excellent. Leaving the best for last. I was in France a couple of weeks ago, and I met a whole group uh, of agile folks and um, they were starving for good learning science because in their organization they come across all sorts of models and tools that are very popular such as multiple intelligence and MBTI and and all the things we've been talking about whether it's on the podcast or through the debunking club or uh, just with each other and this group of four guys are starving for how do we 
discern what's good and what isn't and how do we use that way of thinking with our clients. And I just found it so refreshing to not have to sell them on the idea of good critical thinking, but to have them raise it all on their own. And as 20 somethings in the field, starving for uh, that's great a good way of thinking and critical thinking and and uh, they just they just need to be pointed in the direction to learn it and it was easy to do that is awesome and a perfect way to end our second yeah show so I'm I'm good with truth and learning I think that should be our name this is episode two of truth and learning please yeah. this is yeah. Will Tallheimer signing off always aiming to aspire to sharing truth with you where and, we can find it. And, and this if is we can't Matthew, find it, we'll make it up. And this is Matthew Richter hoping this makes us all rich. <laughs> <laughs>